Good morning, church. How are you doing this morning? It's good to be back with all of you. And we are beginning to see the runway here in our series in 1 Timothy because we are going to spend two weeks finishing up this chapter, and then there's only one chapter to go. And uh, we're going to be tackling this morning verses 17 through 21. Ricardo next week is going to be speaking out of the remainder of the chapter, verses 22 and following. Uh, But in this series of house rules, uh, we've titled the message this morning, Rules for Ruling, or Rules for Rulers, and we'll explain why in a moment, but just by way of setting up some of this, I had a conversation with a gentleman um, at my gym earlier this week. Uh, He's about 84 years old, um, and he still goes to the gym, so, you know, good on him. But uh, he made a comment to me that he, he doesn't like to attend church because small churches get too political is what he said. And uh, of course, none of us know anything about that. That's impossible. That can't be true at all. Um, But when we hear that statement, we we would be inclined to agree or to see the truth in that. Um, But let's think about that. Is that all there is to it? We've been given these house rules all throughout 1 Timothy so that the church can be more like what it really is. So think for a moment with me what the church is. In scripture. Think of Ephesians 5, the comparison between the, the bride and Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. We're holy, we're washed. Those are the terms that scripture uses of us as the church. The church is a holy and blameless bride in the eyes of her Savior. In the world, we don't look that way. We don't always feel that way. But that's who we really are the rules that we're given for how to conduct ourselves within the local church fellowship is so that we can be more like what we really are. And so just to set things up, again, 1 Timothy, we saw in chapter 1, verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he desires all sorts of people to be saved, chapter 2, verse 4. And he brings them into his household, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I write these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And so we're given these rules for life in God's household for our good. And we're given them so that we would look more like the, the holy and blameless bride that Christ has made us by his blood. And yet we're in this season of transition as a church. And just at a national scale as well, there's distrust of leadership. There's headlines that we see of, of church leaders falling Uh, under accusations of abusive leadership and all sorts of things. There's all sorts of reasons to doubt local church leadership. And at the center of the debate is how do we adjudicate these things? How do we deal with it when a church leader falls under fire? There's a recent book that was released. The author has since clarified some of these remarks, although I think the initial statement is striking. And in this book... The statement was made, innocent until proven guilty is a legal standard. But in the church, it doesn't apply. You just believe what you're told if there's an accusation. Is that true? What does justice look like for the local church? Paul addresses some of those questions for young Timothy. And so we're given rules for rulers. And my central contention this morning is going to be that the church must honor and discipline its leadership with grace according to the law of God. 
Let me say that again, and we'll unpack that throughout the morning. The church must honor and discipline its leadership with grace according to the law of God. And as we dive into this text, just one note. We need to avoid the temptation to immediately read our situation into Timothy's situation. There's areas of overlap, but there's also areas of distinct difference. And so we may be struck by one thing or another. We might be struck by what Paul says and its application to us. We might be struck more by what Paul doesn't say in the context of our situation. But we have to understand what it meant for Timothy in context before we give application for our own context. We need to know what it means for him before we know what it means for us. So let's pray to understand God's word this morning, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your word that you've given us. Lord, we pray that you would be honored, you'd be glorified, and the body of Christ here that's gathered would be built up and edified and strengthened in the truth so that Jesus Christ would receive all of the honor and praise in the way that we conduct ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the church must honor and discipline its leadership with grace according to the law of God. So there's four imperatives, four instructions that I want to draw out this morning. There's four basic commands. Now there's lots of insight that we can gain from this passage, but there's four basic imperatives that the apostle gives his protege Timothy. And so we want to look at those four this morning. And the first comes to us straight from verses 17 and 18. Let the, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So the first imperative that we see simply is that the church must honor elders sincerely. The church must honor elders sincerely. So let's ask three questions with regard to this. First, who is this for? How are we to show honor to these individuals? And why should we show honor? And Paul gives us those embedded in this imperative. So first, who is this for? He says, let the elders who rule well. What is that? Who is that? First, let's, let's note who is the object of this honor that's being given. An elder, in this case, worthy of such honor, is one who rules. It says, let those who rule well. The word here literally means to stand before. It can be used as someone who's an example. He stands before others as an example. But in this context here, it also means one who rules over something, one who presides over something, one who manages, one who has charge, has authority delegated from a higher source. So the same word here, proestomai, a man also, according to chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, proestomize his household. He must manage his household well, we're told earlier. It's the same word. So this is critical. So elders have authority. Elders have real authority. There's ruling authority that comes here. This is important for us to take note of and to not miss because we do believe in congregational authority. And we look at passages like Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Both of those are about church discipline situations. And you see there that the congregation is the final vote, the final court of appeals before issues of church discipline are brought to the point of excommunication. So when there's sin in the body of Christ, there's private confrontation, then there's a small group intervention, then it goes to the elders, then it goes to the congregation. And if the person doesn't repent, they're to be treated as an unbeliever, pursued lovingly, but excluded from the fellowship. So we do believe in congregational authority. That's a real thing. We have to have a category for that. 
We also believe that at the cross, the playing field is evil, is equal, rather. It's level. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We submit to each other in the Lord, Ephesians 5.21. But all of that said, elders do, according to this verse here, rule. So they're not just ballot counters. They're not just to lick their finger and stick it up into the wind and see which way the wind of popular opinion is blowing. They have actual authority. Hebrews 13, 17 commands this. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the elders have this serious charge. They will give an account to the Lord of how they dealt with the souls of those that they had watch over. And we are to render obedience to them in response. Now, the congregation has authority. But it's just interesting to me. There's no, there's no opposite correlation to, 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 to Hebrews 13, 17. There's no command for the elders. By the way, you must submit to the congregation's authority. You don't see a similar verse put the other way. There is the command for congregations to submit to the authority of elders. So we need elders to rule. Elders to exercise real authority. And that may make us uncomfortable, but let's continue. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So an honorable elder is one who labors. The word here that's used is the same Greek word that gives us the root for our English word copious. You think about copious work. This is meticulous hard work. This is toil. This is heavy. See, we tend to think that ministry isn't real work. But God doesn't have two classes of children, those who work full-time and those who are in ministry full-time. Pastoral work is work. It's hard work. And what type of work? Those who labor in preaching and teaching. Or literally, you could translate this word and instruction. So we're talking about the ministry of the word, but also teaching, instruction, drawing out the meaning of scripture. It's not enough to just open up scripture and say what it means. You also have to synthesize. You have to systematize. You have to apply. You have to put the cookies on the bottom shelf so that people know not just the historic backgrounds, not just the interesting things about this Greek word or that Greek word, but there has to be application that's given as well. Preaching and teaching, word and instruction. And this is copious, meticulous toil to which the pastor is called. He can't hide in the study for 40 hours a week. It's not his only job. He has to also rule well. But he certainly can't feed the sheep sloppy leftovers from Saturday night from something that he pulled out of his back pocket. He is to commit himself to the ministry of the word. It's, it's not the only important thing, but it is an important thing for the pastor. A pastor worth honoring must toil in the word not in civilian affairs, a phrase drawn from 2 Timothy. He's to be steeped in the truths of God. He can't just come up on stage and talk about himself with anecdotes that make him seem more relatable. That's fine for a TED Talk, but not when you're standing behind the authority of God's word. He's to labor in preaching and teaching, not just unpacking the text, but also giving its meaning, exegesis and exposition, observation and application. He must labor in the text during the week, and he must labor to make its meaning plain. 
So who is this for? It's for an elder who rules well, and it's for an elder who labors in preaching and teaching. How are we to show this honor? Two ways. One, personally, interpersonally. So we're to show respect. Because ministry is not easy, right? We may think that pastors are more thick-skinned than they are. But trust us, that, that email with some friendly feedback to the person who, who preaches or teaches or leads the church in some way doesn't feel friendly to him on Monday morning. If you talk to a pastor, there is a real thing called the Monday blues. We have to be aware of that. Show grace to those who lead in the church. Show honor to pastors. And this does, of course, as we saw in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, include obedience. Now, this doesn't mean that you follow your pastor into sin. Pastors are not immune from error. If you're violating your conscience, if you're violating your principles, you don't follow your pastor into that. You don't follow pastors and elders into sin, into violating what they believe to be true. But as much as it depends on you, outside of those situations, we should seek to show honor personally by obeying even when we disagree. Because if we only obey decisions and observe decisions that elders make when we agree with them, we're not truly obeying and honoring and submitting to our elders in the Lord. We're obeying ourselves. Even when we disagree, we show honor and submit. Fortunately, that never happens, right? (laughs) We know it does. But second, not only personally, but materially. I had a conversation with somebody one time. We were talking about lay elders who serve and we use this verse, and okay, let them be considered worthy of, do, uh, of, of double honor. Okay, so if you're getting paid zero, so zero times two is still zero. Is that, is that what Paul's saying here? Obviously not, right? Zero times two is zero, but, but what he's talking about is for those who rule well, for those who labor in preaching and teaching, compensation is normative. Compensation is normative. There's much that we could say here. It's good for a pastor to have other skills, to be out in the community, to be working hard with his hands. In fact, we'll talk about that a little bit in a moment. But compensation is the rule. It says, for the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. See, many churches decide to help a pastor along in his sanctification by preemptively making a poverty vow on his behalf and deciding that you're going to make him more holy and less attached to earthly goods by paying him less on purpose. You're welcome, Pastor. We're helping you be more holy. We don't get to do that. Leave his sanctification to God, please. Compensation is normative. Now, there are exceptions in Scripture. So Paul himself, in 1 Corinthians 9, you may be familiar with the passage. Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, right? You've, you've heard that statement. But that's within the context of him saying, Hey, if I preach it and I I get compensated, that's one thing. But I preach it free of charge so that no one would be able to deprive me of my boasting. Or even if I preach, a necessity is laid upon me, right? He talks about the fact that his personal reward from the Lord would be in the fact that he, uh, he, he was willing to forego any compensation that he would receive for handling the word. Paul made an exception for himself. Ministers today can make exceptions, They may not choose to take advantage of compensation for a couple different reasons. First, as a witness. That's what Paul did. Because he was in such a position of authority as an apostle, he wanted to be completely unassailable by others. He didn't want to be open to any accusation of greed. You see that in some of his writing. And second, as an example. 
because Paul also says uh, to the Thessalonians and elsewhere that he wanted to be an example to them of how one should work, of how one should labor. See, if a pastor is called, along with any minister of the word, to do what the Great Commission says, to make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded them, then question, how can a pastor teach the average believer who works hard in a trade, in a craft, in an employment context, how can a pastor teach everyone to do that if he's never modeled it himself, if he's never had to work himself? I'm not saying it's impossible, but Paul says for that reason, he wanted to model to them what it meant to work hard, to not depend on anyone. So in some situations, a pastor may choose to forego some or, or, or all or part of their compensation, but even in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul says that he chose to do that, in verse 14, he makes this statement. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. See, Paul couches all of this in saying, hey, for me, here's how I do it. But here's the rule. See, Paul is the exception. Compensation is normative. Pastors and elders who labor in preaching, in teaching, and who rule well are worthy of personal honor, of respect, and also of material honor, of financial compensation, of payment. To do justice in the realm of church leadership is to recognize this and put it into practice. So why should we show honor to these individuals? Two reasons. Biblical law and the teachings of Jesus that back up biblical law. And we'll see this again later, too. But Paul appeals first to Deuteronomy 25, 4, when he says, do not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, which I know is, for all of you, that's your life verse, right? Like, you have that embroidered on a pillow somewhere, I'm sure. Don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. But just as a refresher here, the law of God is abidingly relevant. The reformer John Calvin is credited with giving us three uses of the law, right? So if you've ever struggled with the Old Testament codes and commands, there's three uses for them for the believer. First is as a curb. So in society, things like the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, they are a curb on our evil behavior. Evil people, people whose hearts are unchanged, people who do not know Christ, do not love God, still hear things like, thou shalt not kill, and there is still something in them that turns away and says, oh yeah, I probably shouldn't. Right? It serves as a curb. It holds society together. Second, as a mirror, we look into the law and we see how much we fall short. Just like you look into a mirror and you see how dirty your face is or how disheveled your hair is. We look into the perfect law of God. We realize we're sinners in need of a Savior. That's what drives us to Christ to save us from our sin. The law shows us how far we fall short. But the third use is as a guide on the believer's life. See, once we're forgiven of sins, we don't throw the law aside and just say, well, I'm just going to read the red letters now. The law is the blueprint for obedient Christian living. Not necessarily the specific civil codes, all as they applied to Israel in their cultural context, but the moral principles that are drawn from those things. Listen, this is a law about animal husbandry. I mean, this is a law that regulated what farmers were supposed to do with their oxen. And Paul is saying, there's a moral principle here for believers throughout all time out of an animal husbandry law, something that's obscure, something that you wouldn't have embroidered to a pillow. So the whole law of God is applicable for us. It's relevant for us. And there's principle here not only for compensation of pastors, but for any worker. 
There's this interesting refrain throughout the Old Testament. It starts in the law, but then the prophets keep repeating it as people keep breaking it and experiencing judgment for their sins. Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15. Do not oppress a hired hand who is poor and needy, whether he's a brother or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. You are to pay his wages each day before sunset, before he is poor and depends on them. Otherwise, he may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. You even hear this refrain echoed in the book of James. If you recall several months ago when we were in the book of James, and it says the, the, the wages of those workers that you've oppressed, you've held back their wages, it's crying out against you, and the Lord hears it. Right? So this is a recurring theme in Scripture, that if you hold back pay, it'll come back to bite you. And so if you have not only a pastor... But if you have employees, if you have contractors, if you have individuals that you work with in your daily life, pay them what you should, pay them what you're worth, what they're worth, rather, and pay them when you said you would. Important instruction for us from Scripture. Biblical law explains why we should show honor, but also the teachings of Jesus. He quotes Deuteronomy, but then he says, the laborer deserves his wages. We think this is a quote from Luke 10, verse 7 where Jesus is sending out his disciples uh, into Israel to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And he says the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Jesus backs up this same moral principle here, but also note, just note with me here, the father heart of God. God doesn't expect you to just minister for free, but not have any of your needs met. Right? God satisfies our needs. Maybe you remember uh, from Ralph's message last week, Pastor Ralph talking about Ephesians 2.10, about how good works are prepared for us before the foundation of the world. They're prepared for us so that we would walk in them, right? And Ralph gave the comparison of this girl that he found at the fun fair. It was helping out at this church event, and she was trying to lift this mallet and, and slam the weight, and, and he, he helps her. He, he holds the mallet with her, and, and they slam it down, and, and she wins the prize. Well, the beauty of it is that with the Lord, none of us has the power to perform ministry. None of us has the power to do these works on our own. God helps us. He enables us. He puts his hands on the mallet with us. And he lowers the mallet with us. He does all of it through us. And yet, we win the prize. He allows us to be compensated. He provides for our needs. Not to live in luxury, but to have what we need, to have enough to give and to love and serve others and build up others. He gives us exactly what we need, and we render back to him out of what we receive as a way of saying thanks and committing it all to him. It's this beautiful picture of God as a provider. Don't lose that. Don't think that you're just pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, and God doesn't also want to repay you. Your labor in the Lord, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six, is not in vain. He will see, he will reward, either now or in eternity, particularly in eternity. Whatever hard work you've done for this church that no one's seen, that you feel unappreciated, the Lord sees. If you're doing it for him, he sees. So just as Paul addressed in the earlier passage regarding widows, Ricardo preached on this two weeks ago, he talked about financial provision for widows, and discipline of widows and how they should uh, behave and, and if they're sinful, what, what to do. Paul hits both of those same topics for elders as well, financial provision and discipline 
So we've discussed honor, and we'll move through the remaining three imperatives that Paul gives us a little bit more quickly. But the second imperative that he gives us is that the church must practice justice biblically. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So we can't receive every accusation. Church leaders, like anyone else, are innocent until proven guilty. That's a biblical standard. We must be guarded. Listen, no one else is more vulnerable to public accusation or attack than those who are in ministry. Calvin said, the more earnestly any pastor strives to advance the kingdom of Christ, so much more is he loaded with envy, and so much the fiercer are the assaults made on him. Others envy him. They seek him out to attack him. We know Satan is after those who are faithful in ministry. There's targets on the back of anyone who is a word worker. Now, this doesn't mean that leaders are untouchable. Maybe you've heard it said in your upbringing, and and maybe it, it left a strange taste in your mouth. Touch not the Lord's anointed, right? Isn't that the verse that's always thrown around out of context, misquoted? It's Psalm 105.15. The context is, touch not my anointed ones. It's talking about the people of Israel being protected providentially by God in their history. It has nothing to do with protecting good old boys clubs that exist in many churches and networks and organizations and denominations. Nobody is above any credible accusation. Nobody is sinless. Leaders are not untouchable. They're not unquestionable. We are not popes. We are not professionals. So sometimes charges do get raised, but they should only be admitted on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So we know that sometimes sin happens in leadership. We know that sometimes there are charges. We do have to deal with sin. We do have to deal with false teaching, with disobedience, with immorality. The question is not should we do anything, but what should we do? Or by what standard ought we to judge these matters? And again, just as before, Paul gives us two things. He gives us biblical law, and he gives us the teachings of Jesus. So first, the biblical law here. Again, he pulls from Old Testament codes. He refers to the evidence of two or three witnesses. We'll talk about that in a moment. But first, notice what he says. As for those who persist in sin, verse 20, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. As for those who persist in sin, those who sin, what is sin? Listen, sin is not looking at your pastor on a Sunday morning and seeing, oh, he wore that tie, or he didn't wear that tie, or he preached for 40 minutes, or he only preached for 40 minutes, right? Those things aren't sins. Those are preferences. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And that's drawn from 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness, the apostle says. So if you're going to make an accusation, number one, it has to be an accusation of sin. What is sin? Breaking God's law. If you can't find chapter and verse on what a church leader did wrong, then chances are it may not have been sin. We have to adjudicate these things according to biblical law. But then he also appeals to this other standard from Deuteronomy 9, excuse me, 1915, about having two or three witnesses. Do not admit a charge except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And first, to just anticipate a question that we often have as we approach this text, 
A, a witness does not need to be just an eyewitness. Right? If the pastor runs off with his secretary, but only the church janitor saw it, and it's on a security camera, well, guess what? The security camera is another witness. This is two or three independent lines of evidence. These are credible lines of evidence. It doesn't necessarily have to refer to an eyewitness. But why two or three? Right? Is that an arbitrary number? Why not 16? Why not one? Why not just a, you know, a really accusational tweet? Right? Why two or three witnesses? Because sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes in and examines him. We need a multiplicity of witnesses when there's an accusation against someone. It has to be credible. The one who states his case first seems right until what? Until you hear the other side of the story, until there's cross-examination. Another interesting thing about witnesses in the Old Testament, same chapter, four verses later where Paul's quoting, Deuteronomy 19.19, says that a false witness, someone who perjures themselves, someone who brings an intentionally false accusation, was liable in Israel, up to the penalty that the person accused of the crime would have been uh, sentenced to. So if someone was falsely accused of murder, and the biblical penalty is a life for a life, then the false witness who intentionally falsely accuses someone would be liable to the death penalty. Now, how much more seriously would we take things if we realize just in our society that if I make an accusation that I know is false, if I'm going to smear someone, if I'm going to accuse them of sin, how much less likely would I be to make that accusation, to lodge that charge if I knew that I would be liable to the same consequences? God's law has some really effective, beautiful, just standards here. We have much to learn from God's law. But second, Paul again gives us Jesus' instructions. Because we know from Matthew 18 that this is the model. Jesus teaches the same thing. That if if someone doesn't respond to private rebuke, well, next you should bring along a couple of others. That's how we should handle things. You started in a private conversation, then you bring along a few more. You don't post a Facebook status about it. You don't tell 15 people that can't help. You bring along one or two more. And here's the thing. It's easy to gather like-minded witnesses with you who share your agenda against a church leader. It's easy to rally people that you know are going to agree with you. We can all do that. But in the context of Matthew 18, those people must also be approaching the individual aiming for forgiveness and reconciliation. They have to have forgiveness in their hearts. Do you remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? He was forgiven the the debt he couldn't owe, millions of dollars. It represents forgiveness of sins, right? But then he goes out and he gets the other servant in a chokehold because he owes him 20 bucks. And the master looks at that and sees that and he says, back to the dungeon with you. You know what? I said your debt was forgiven, forget it. And it's a picture of the fact that a true believer who truly has their sins forgiven will forgive others. But the same thing should apply to us. God cares about when we approach others who are in error or sin, when we confront either individually, or maybe we're bringing along two or three others. We should do that aiming towards forgiveness, towards reconciliation. So when Jesus encourages us to confront in Matthew 18, confront 
ready to forgive. Go to the person ready to be restored to them. Do we do that? Or do we go with an axe to grind? So the church must practice justice biblically. But what do we do when we've established there is sin? What do we do when we've found these two or three witnesses? And we know there's something there that has to be addressed. Well, what we don't do is bury it. Maybe because we want to protect the individual. And so the third imperative that Paul gives us out of four this morning comes to us from verse 20. Rebuke those who sin in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. The third command Paul gives, the church must address sin courageously. The church must address sin courageously. Now remember, what does this mean for Timothy? Let's talk about that before we know what it means for us. The context here is elders who sin. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, Paul warns that people are teaching other doctrines, trying to be teachers of the law, things that they don't even understand. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he warns about false teachers in the church. And from Acts chapter 20, when Paul was convening with the elders over Ephesus, he warned them that people would come from within their own ranks carrying false teaching with them. So the context here is elders who sin. It's not saying that if anyone in the church sins against you, you should rebuke them in the presence of all. But specifically, the point that's being taught here is that if there is someone with a platform who is publicly immoral, who is publicly in sin, who is publicly teaching wrongly, you don't go to them in private, get them to sign your statement of faith, feel better about yourself, have a good conversation, and then ignore it. And if somebody complains, you say, oh, don't worry, I talked to so-and-so, he's a good guy. We don't protect each other like that unjustly. Public sin, public rebuke. Private sin, private rebuke. That's the principle. Because for the sake of those who followed that individual into their error, into false teaching, or into sin of any sort, it's for their sake. It says so that the rest may stand in fear. If someone's been deceived by a leader who's leading people down the wrong road, they need to know. We owe it to them. To love the body of Christ is to confront public sin publicly and private sin privately when necessary and appropriate. And again, let's note here, this is those who sin. We are to rebuke those who sin. So unless we have chapter and verse on what command of God was actually broken, then we should be careful that we're not just enforcing our own preferences against leaders. And we should also note that there's a difference between what Jude says in Jude verse 3, that we are to contend for the faith. There's a difference between contending for the faith and being contentious. Not everything is a church council. Not everything right, is heresy. And we have to be aware of that ourselves. There's a difference between contending for the faith and being contentious. But we, we do realize that all of this takes extreme discernment. We are to honor pastors who rule well, who, who labor in preaching and teaching. We're to show honor to the person because of the office that they occupy. But we cannot excuse sin. We cannot apologize for it. If there's evidence, if it's trustworthy and credible, we should rebuke them. And when we have to, rebuke them publicly and courageously. So how do we balance this? How do we deal with showing honor and yet at the same time disciplining? How do we love our pastors but hold them accountable in a way that submits to them? There's a tension there, right? And so Paul finally gives us this fourth command. The church must fight favoritism tirelessly. No 
favorites. We're not allowed to play favorites. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Verse 21. So first, Paul places Timothy before the face of God. Quorum Deo. Imagine, he says to Timothy, how would you treat individuals in your church if you were standing in the throne room of God with Christ on the throne with the elect angels, the holy angels all around, because in a very real sense, when you're in the local church context, you are in the presence of God. How would you treat people then? He encourages Timothy to call that scenario to mind. And then he gives the command. And this is unique, because this is a command that pertains to how the last three commands are to be kept. So Paul says, we should honor these elders... We should not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And for those who sin, rebuke them publicly. The fourth command, while you're doing all of those, here's how to do it. So it's a, it's a unique command. It's a command about how we're to do these things. Listen, it isn't sufficient to technically do the right things, to follow the faith in order, to follow p- proper parliamentary procedure with the wrong heart. Our motives matter. See, it's not enough to have biases, but to suppress them and to externally do the right thing and to make the right decisions. We must not nurse any prejudices in our hearts at all. It's not enough to suppress them. We should remove them. Because Paul repeats, keep these rules without prejudice or bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. So that's a pretty synonymous phrase, right? Do nothing out of prejudice. Do nothing out of prejudging. Keep it without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Nothing should come out of a heart of prejudgment. Three warnings about partiality as we close. Partiality is grave. It is a grave sin. We use all sorts of euphemisms for it in our culture. In the context of race and ethnicity, we call it racism. In the context of church, or maybe our homes, we call it playing favorites or favoritism. But the biblical word is partiality. Let's use the biblical word. James, in chapter 2, he says this, My my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then he says in verse 9, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Partiality is wicked. Second, partiality is wrong in any direction, in any orientation. The standard cuts both ways. Leviticus 19.15, this is a really interesting law for Israel. It applies to all of us in our hearts. Think about this. God says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. See, the prevailing wisdom right now says, yeah, obviously you don't want to you know, give the rich a break. You don't want to show preference to the rich. But the poor, I mean, they're suffering, so you should err on that side. Well, biblically it says don't show partiality to the poor or the great, to the suffering or the well, to the great or the small. Justice, biblically speaking, is blind. Partiality is wrong in any direction, no matter who we perceive that the, 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 the perceived victim or oppressor is. 
We're not to be partial in any direction. And finally, partiality is toxic. It is absolutely toxic to the life of a local church and to our own spiritual growth as individuals. I've been reading through 1 and 2 Corinthians, and I was struck by what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. He refers to them. You'll recall, there's, there's, they're playing favorites with their favorite celebrity pastors, right? I am of Apollos. I am of Paul. I am of Jesus. That's what's going on. And Paul says that the Corinthians who are doing this, they are people of the flesh. They're infants in Christ. They're still of the flesh. Verse 4, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, aren't you of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one, one says, for one, when one says, I follow Paul and the other I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? When they fall prey to pastoral partiality, they are being carnal. We're to be unbiased. Listen, this has to do with our witness. This has to do with the individual that I mentioned at the beginning of the message who avoids churches because they're political. Because how can we profess a gospel that saves us from judgment, this good news that saves us from the judgment of God, if we nurse prejudicial judgments about each other in our hearts? How can we believe and preach that there's no condemnation in Christ and yet make judgments about each other based off of a look or something that was said long ago that should have been forgotten or forgiven? The church must honor its Honor and discipline its leadership with grace according to the law of God. Next week, we'll get into the rest of this passage. There's a few more imperatives here that have to do with how new leadership is ordained. But to take what we've seen and to apply it to ourselves. First, let's genuinely honor the leaders God has sovereignly placed over us. Let's genuinely honor them, personally, materially. Second, let's mercifully uphold standards of biblical justice for church leaders. Let's be fair. Let's be merciful. Let's not believe every accusation. But third, let's meticulously root out public sin where there are problems, where there are sins that were public in nature. Let's confront them. And fourth, let's reverently, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, let's reverently repent of favoritism. We're going to the Lord's table this morning, and Matt will come up in a moment and lead us in that time, but as we go to the table, is there favoritism in our hearts? Is there partiality among us? Is there sin that's private or public that's been unaddressed, unrebuked? Let's search ourselves. Father, thank you for your word that exposes us. It, it convicts us. It convicts all of us, Lord. It cuts every which direction. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of bone and marrow, of soul and of spirit. And we praise you for it. Lord, let us be a church more like what we are. We are holy. We are blameless in Christ. Our sins are washed away. So help our local church fellowship in the relationships that we have with each other and with our pastors and elders reflect that reality so that your son, Jesus Christ, would be glorified as we spread the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Alex. Uh, As we come to... 
the table again.